0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Andrew
1: Agapur. He looked me right in the eyes, and then he vomited (laughs) into his hand. That and
0: more. But before that, a song that asks one of the greatest questions ever asked. I believe it has to do with... Where you can find everything you need to create a... I'll let the singer say it. Where can you find everything you need to create an exceptional website?
2: Squarespace.com Squarespace.com And you can drag and drop your images to
0: upload. Your site will look great on any device. Building stand of the art web pages and blogs has never been easier.
2: So try Squarespace.com today.
0: God, my lungs. That's right. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform. Squarespace sites look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. Start your free trial site today. No credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, use the offer code RISK to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it Beautiful. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Kid Stone. Behind me now, we are calling today's episode Distortions, three stories uh, where people had to kind of reframe in their brains what it was that was going on. For example... that was a walrus sound or was it in a little bit we're going to hear from brooke lancaster who shared her story at our recent show in austin texas but before that at that same show we heard from the wonderful austin-based comedian aaron brooks and here he is now with a story we call gone girl
3: Thank you. Every year, my hometown of Dupont, Illinois, throws a party. It's called the Fireman's Picnic, and it's in the center of town, on the old fire department grounds. And every year, I get suckered into going, but I always show up late. You know, I don't want to be the first one there. I park blocks away, and as soon as I get out of my car, I'm just blasted with the sound of a shitty local band playing. With every step, the sound grows louder. And once you get close enough to the fairgrounds, you're hit in the face with the smell of stale beer and fried fish. And that sound changes. Because now it's not just the band. Now it's the whir of the carnival rides. It's the kids asking their parents for a dollar bill. It's the metal rings bouncing off the tops of milk jugs. It's the hundreds of conversations being had. Because that's what that event is all about. A town of three thousand people coming together in one central location and talking gossip for the last year. (laughs) And that is precisely why it scared me so much. Because what if somebody asked? It started my freshman year of high school. I was rehearsing lines for the school play I was cast in, which was Rumpelstiltskin, by the way. (laughs) I was cast as the Huntsman, a strong and silent type. Two to three lines one of which was a wolf howl so it's pretty cool we were rehearsing in the lower hallway which seemed to be a different country compared to the rest of the school it had a low ceiling it was darker it was quiet it felt safe and secure and like nothing could go wrong and that's probably why i felt so comfortable talking i was going through my lines with a girl named megan Megan was a cheerleader. She was on the dance team. She was cute, but not too cute. She had shoulder-length brown hair and big brown doe eyes. We were in similar social circles and in an alternate universe we probably dated. I remember sitting there with my back up against the cold steel locker going back and forth with Megan on our lines and she laughed at everything I said. She said I was a wonderful rehearsal partner. She put her hand on my knee and I felt connected for the first time in a long time. And I wanted that feeling to progress. So I lied. Let me tell you this lie. I looked at her, my mouth dried out. My heart started racing. My words came out staggered. And I did that thing where I held my eyes open for too long and they started to burn. And then when I closed them, it would look like I was tearing up. <laughs> and I said, Megan, there's something I want to tell you. And she said, what is it? She angled her body towards mine. I said, I have an ex-girlfriend who had just killed herself. Yeah. <laughs> Let me back up. tell you why this happened my parents divorced when i was nine from nine to 13 the year before this incident my dad was mostly out of my life and around 13 he started showing up again acting like he got his shit together he moved in with my stepmom misty and her four kids and he wanted me to meet them and I'd hang out with them, and we'd have dinners together like a family and we'd play video games. And it felt like I was part of something again. And it felt good and it felt real. And he wanted me to move in with him. And it felt like a second chance. And that's something you don't get to often in life. So I took him up on it. So I went from living in Columbia, which was an upper middle class suburb of St. Louis, to living in DuPo, Dupo. <laughs> and Dupo was a lower <laughs> Class Suburb of St. Louis The difficult thing about it Is that they were bitter rivals The two towns They were close in proximity And every year The local football game Would break kids out to a park The two student bodies And they would just beat the shit out of each other when you live in Southern Illinois, not a lot to do. <laughs> but seeing as I was going to be going to this rival school, I knew I was walking in at a competitive disadvantage from day one. So I felt like I had to create a backstory about myself to sound intriguing. Because if I'm intriguing, people are talking about me, and they're paying attention to me. And that's better than whatever existence I would have had in the void. So Megan looked at me in the hallway and said, what happened? And now I'm in the lie, right? I can't back out and say, oh, I, uh, gotcha, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just josh with you. Let's go back to reading Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> I couldn't do that. Now my heart's really racing and my palms are super sweaty. My back is aching because my body is just tensed up. And I tell her, I said, well, I was dating this girl, Alexandria, Lexi for short. (laughs) It's my little nickname for her. And we dated for years and years and we were so in love as (laughs) pre-teens. And then Lexi and her family moved to the Northwest and we tried to make it work. We kept in contact, writing letters all the time. And then one day I get a letter, and it says, Dear Aaron, I love you so much. I miss you so much. I can't do this anymore. If I can't be with you, I can't be here at all. And then shortly after receiving that letter, I got another letter from her mom telling me what had happened, and enclosed in that letter, was a clip from the newspaper obituary section. That's the worst mom ever. (laughs) What a bitch she was. (laughs) But that was the lie. The weirder part about this lie, too, is that Alexandria is based on a real girl, sort of. There was one semester where everything in my life was in flux between moving out of my mom's and into my dad's that I was homeschooled and I would spend most of those days walking to the local public library where I'd browse the stacks and I would ultimately give my card to the older woman behind the counter and she'd direct me to a computer terminal where I'd jump online to Yahoo Chat where I would ultimately go to the punk rock room. that's me, punk rock. And that's where I met Lexi. She was a girl who would chat there often. Her screen name was some hybrid of Rage Against the Machine and Blink 182, and I wish I could remember what it was. But she was cute and sprightly and small, and she lived in Salt Lake City, Utah. Is she real? (sighs) Who knows, you know? Because as a boy growing up in the 90s on the internet, you'll believe anything. So right now there's some woman in Salt Lake City, Utah, who chatted on Yahoo with a boy in the late 90s, and she has no idea what an impact she had on his life. (laughs) But this weird thing happened. Once I started telling this lie to people, because it came out over and over again, word would spread and people were curious. As soon as everybody found out, I was like a ghost. It was a myth. My name was on everybody's lips. People would talk about me like, hey, have you heard about this Aaron Brooks guy? Oh, you mean that new kid whose girlfriend killed herself? Yeah, he seems like a pretty good dude. (laughs) Because nobody wants to believe you're an asshole when they think you've gone through something like that. But it was difficult to keep up. Because I was living in constant fear that someone would stand up in the back of a crowded room and call me on it. Like that one kid. You know, the kid who's been there since kindergarten? The kid who thinks, why is the new guy getting all the attention, huh? I don't care if he's weird, what about me? The kid with the buzz cut and the shirt that didn't fit him, that kid. He was the one that I was scared of. I was scared he'd stand up in the middle of class and say, hey Aaron, I heard about this dead girlfriend thing. Frankly, I don't believe it. I'm going to need to see some proof. So I... Made proof. Once I told this story often enough and really developed this legitimate fear, I sat in my room one night and I pulled out a sheet of loose leaf paper. And then I pulled out a green pen. And in cursive handwriting, for authenticity's sake, I wrote a love letter from a fictional dead girl. To me. (laughs) But at fourteen, like I I wasn't good looking or charming, or overly smart, or athletic. Girls didn't like me. So the only thing to populate the letter, the only positive reinforcement from a woman in my life, came from my mom. And those things went in the letter. of them really stick out. One of them was, you have the broadest shoulders that can bear the weight of the world. (laughs) That was something my mom would tell me when the divorce between her and my dad was really rough. When my dad wouldn't call for months on end and it would really get to me. She'd come up to me, she'd wrap her arms around me, and she'd pat me on the shoulders and just say, "Aaron, you have the broadest shoulders and they can bear the weight of the world. Never forget that. And I thought that was pretty cool. But the weirder thing that went in this letter was, you have your father's eyes. I look just like my dad. I'm a carbon copy of him to the point that my brother and sister used to chase me around the house when we were little kids and they would call me Little Randy. (laughs) But that was in the letter from my girlfriend to me. Like if we would have been friends when I was in high school and you'd have called me on it, I'd have given you this letter. You would have read it and said, hey, um, Aaron. I don't mean to be a buzzkill or anything, uh, but I think this girl may have fucked your dad. Fortunately, it never came to me having to show that letter to anybody. But I kept it in my wallet for years. Just in case somebody would have heard me talk about something mid-drama club rehearsal and I'd have to go, I can prove it. Over the next few years of high school, that lie slowly drifted into the background. I grew up. I developed a personality. Everyone knew me as charming and funny. I was on homecoming court. I was prom king my senior year. I didn't need that lie anymore. But I never owned up to it either. Never told anybody the truth. Until now. <laughs> so I like to think this summer in DuPo, Illinois. At the fireman's picnic, there's a group of kids. They all went to high school together in the early 2000s, and they're standing around talking about the ghosts they find in their yearbook. And my name comes up. And they'll say, Aaron Brooks? Oh, yeah. He's that kid whose girlfriend killed herself, right? Yeah, but you know what? He seemed like a pretty good dude. Thank you guys so much for having me. Good night.
4: Dearest Aaron, you have the broadest shoulders that could carry the weight of the world. You have your father's eyes. Oh, and Aaron, remember to floss every day. Have I told you I really like the way you uh, eat your vegetables. You know what I love, Aaron? When you wash the dishes without me even asking. Just remember, Erin, if you need to go potty, you just have to say so. Anyway, never forget me, Erin, because I said so. What year it was because that'll tell you how old I am, but let's just say it was a really tumultuous year many, many moons ago. My grandmother had actually passed away. I had just finished grad school in sociology and my boyfriend and I moved all the way from Chicago down to New Orleans so that he could go to law school. I had high hopes of finding this amazing academic research position. As you can probably guess, a lot of time passed and I hadn't found anything. So pretty much I spent all my free time in this awesome local coffee house in New Orleans playing cards. My favorite card game is spades, and I can play spades all day long, and I did. So um, I ended up meeting this guy named Newton, and he and I became good friends. And the reason we became good friends is because we played against this guy named Eddie. And Eddie had just gotten out of prison, and he always seemed to win against everyone else. And everybody lost, except Newton and I. And it's because we had cracked Eddie's code. When he held his cards, each of his fingers represented a different suit. And how he moved that finger and where told you exactly what he was holding in his hand. But instead of, like, busting him and being like, hey, I figured it out, it was way more fun just to beat him all the time and really frustrate him. (laughs) But anyway, that's how Newton and I became friends. Uh, Newton was a little bit taller than me. He was kind of skinny, but a little bit defined. He had a shaved head, brown hair, with these bright green eyes. And my favorite thing about him was that he had a tattoo that ran along the front of his forearm, and it just said, Revolution. <laughs> Something about that was very intriguing to me. So we became really good friends, and we did what all good friends do in New Orleans. We listened to Zydeco music every weekend. We ate alligator po'boys. We fed the homeless together. And we argued about Kafka. It was a good relationship. <laughs> One night, we decided that we were going to go out and see a movie. We actually went to see the very first Lord of the Rings. And uh, it was this little bitty, small, historic theater. And we were walking up to it, going to get our seats and popcorn. And then my phone rang. I answered my phone. And it was my mom. And she called to tell me that my aunt had committed suicide. And so I hung up the phone And I just robotically turned around and walked out of the theater, didn't say anything. And I was standing there outside and the tears were coming down out of my eyes. And all I felt was Newton's hand right on my back. And I just sank down and he sat next to me and I told him the whole story of everything. And he said to me, I really haven't shared this with anyone, but he'd wanted to tell me about his family. And he said, you know, a couple of years ago my mom and dad and my uncle all moved out to this rural part of Oklahoma and they joined a racist militia group. And when they did that, I refused to go with them. So he had been calling his mom periodically. And as he called her, he realized that her belief system was very different than his dad and his uncle's and she was ready to leave Oklahoma. Didn't want to be a part of that anymore. And he told me that she became more and more ready to leave and his father became more and more upset that she didn't want to stay and that what ended up happening is that in a suicide pact, his father killed his mother and then he, um, his father and his uncle hung themselves in their trailer and we both just sat in silence and we put our arms around each other and in that moment, we just sat in our collective sadness and we were inseparable. After that, we were best friends. In fact, Newton helped me find my first job in New Orleans. It was not an academic research position. It was as a welder. (laughs) When I was a sophomore in college, I uh, met a guy and I did learn to weld. And I always laughed and said it was going to be my fallback plan if I couldn't get something in sociology. But I didn't actually think that that would happen. So... I ended up on this construction team in downtown New Orleans, and we were welding, and I actually attempted demolition at one point, but I can't lift the thing, so they put me back on welding. <laughs> the best part about it was that I left, and like, I was covered in dirt and sweat and grime, and I had a whole lot of cash in my hand by the end of the day, and that was the best part of all of it. But it did get a little bit boring at times and kind of monotonous. And so Newton and I made up games to entertain ourselves. And one of the games we would play was we would go outside during lunch and we would sit down on the stairs and you would get a point for every suit that you could make turn around and look at you just based on what you said. So I would say certain things like, I never knew I could fit seven quarters in my nostril. And then I'd look and see like, did anybody look back to see what my nose looks like, right? And Newton would say stuff, he would go like, God, I got so drunk last night, but I didn't expect to wake up naked next to my sister. Judy <laughs> always won. It was so unfair. <laughs> People always look back at that one. The other game that we made up was during our smoke breaks, we would go out back in an alley. And there was this long alley. And at the very end of it, you could see the bank from downtown. And every day, an armored car would drive up in front of the bank same time every day and we'd be out there with our cigarettes and we would watch them get out of the car and everything that they did. And I've always been fascinated, absolutely fascinated by perfectly planned crimes. Like Reservoir Dogs, Okay, maybe it didn't go over perfect, but it was still one of my favorite movies. And then the Thomas Crown Affair, I don't know if you've seen that, also another really good perfectly planned heist. Anyway, so we would go out there, and we would come up with, like, ideas of how we were going to rob this armored car, and I would be like, well, we could just walk up and, like, grab the guy and pull him out of it, you know, and then jump in and go, and he would be like, you can't just jump in the car, right? Like, what about the keys, and what about the partner, and I would be like, okay, because I get chloroform, right, and I could have, like, a rag in my pocket, and we could, like, knock him out and shove him in the car, and... Newton was like, and then he like wakes up in the car and what happens? <laughs> and I'm like, we just shove him out, you know? And he, and he was like, you can't do that. Like if the dude, if he dies, then you know, you haven't just robbed an armored car, now you've killed a guy. And I was like, yeah, that's right. Like ethically, I couldn't kill someone. Like morally, I felt bad about that. So it was like... <laughs> I was like, okay, well, then what we could do is we could actually, you know, he could wake up and we could plead to his higher sense of loyalty to his family, and we could be like, look, dude, we'll take you by your house, just don't say anything. And he thought that was stupid. So um, he could laugh at a lot of my ideas, but sometimes I had it right. Sometimes I had, like, really good getaway strategies of, like, mapping out the city beforehand and making sure your GPS was already programmed so you don't have to do that while you're driving. So anyway, that's how we entertained ourselves at work. But six months later, we had started working together and everything. Um, Newton broke up with his girlfriend and he didn't really have anywhere to go cause he hadn't saved up a lot of money to be able to put stuff down on a new place. And I was like, okay, great. We have a spare room. Come live with us. Um, so he actually came to live with my boyfriend and I, and he stayed in our spare room and he was the best roommate ever ever ever. He was like meticulously clean. He was never loud. He took the dogs out and like curled up with them on the couch and was amazing. In fact, one time he offered me three dollars for a week old slice of pizza. I was like, that's disgusting. Keep your money, but you can eat the pizza. We lived in New Orleans, and if you've ever been there, you know that it might not be like the capital of safety. So surprisingly, our neighbor's house was robbed, and I got super freaked out. And I was like, my grandmother had given me some jewelry, and I was afraid that someone would break into our place and steal my jewels. I had this great idea that I was going to put all my jewelry in a Pringles chip can. I know. Very novel. So I put it all in this chip can and I'm standing in the kitchen and I'm trying to put it on the cupboard and Newton comes in and he's like, what are you doing? I was like, I am hiding my jewels. It's really smart. I've got them in a chip can and I'm going to put them up there. And he was like, that's super stupid. Like who puts their chips way up there? Everybody knows that you're hiding something in there if you put Pringles where you can't reach them. I was like, okay. And so he grabs this can out of my hand and he starts walking down the hallway and I go, like, running after him, like, what the heck is going on? He goes in the bathroom and he opens up the cabinet and he pulls out my box of tampons. I was like, what are you doing with my tampons? He's like, no one's gonna ruffle through your tampons in a break-in. And at that moment, I realized that Newton was the smartest person I knew. (laughs) So... For the holidays came and my family and I we always go to Utah for the holidays and I was like Newton come with us it'll be great we can fly out there and you know my boyfriend and I and you and we can have a great time and he refused to go and he said you know I'm gotta work which I knew was a lie because we worked together and we weren't working so but anyway he stayed back with the dogs and it was really nice of him during the year that we lived together we all rocked along and this like beautiful state of bliss and then one day I came home to hear the phone ringing I picked up the phone and it was our friend John and he said is Newton there and I was was like no he's not here right now he said do you have today's paper and I was like no I don't get the paper he's and he was like go get a paper right now and call me back when you figure it out and then he hung up And I was like, okay, this is really stupid, but whatever, I'll do it. So I walked all the way down in the middle of the night to get this paper. And then I came back, and I started looking through the paper. And I was flipping the pages, and there it was. And I saw a picture of Newton. And I was like, my best friend's in the paper. This is so awesome. And then I read the top of it. And it said, wanted by the FBI. Bank robbery. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. My whole world like tilted to the side and I could have slid off instantly. There was no way, no way. So I ran around the house looking for anything of his that had been left. And there was nothing there, like my arms and legs were shaking and I couldn't figure out what in the world was going on. I was so confused. It was like I lost my best friend in an instant. And I called John back and I was like, nothing of his is here. And he said, the FBI is coming to your house. Just want to let you know they just left here. And I'll never forget that agent knocking on my door. First of all, they knock very loud. And they do it on purpose, I think, to scare you. And I think that's mean. (laughs) And the guy said, Agent Riker here, ma'am. And I said, beam on in, because it's a stupid Star Trek reference. We were not friends after that. (laughs) So he interviewed me and I, I don't know, maybe that tattoo of revolution kept going through my head, but I was sort of really snarky in my answers. I was like, no, I don't have any pictures of him, but really my screensaver behind the guy's head was like flashing up pictures of Newton behind it. And I was like, don't look backwards. But what I learned is this, I learned that his name was a lie I learned his age was a lie. I learned his deceased family was a lie. I learned that everything he told me about himself was a lie. And at that point I wondered, was our entire friendship a lie? And then at that point I remembered all the diamonds and the jewelry that he had helped me hide. And I ran to the bathroom and I ripped open that cabinet and I pulled the box out and I shoved my hand down inside and when I pulled out all of my jewelry, I realized that our friendship had not been a lie. I didn't lose my diamonds and I didn't lose my friend at all. What I realized was that we all have pieces of ourselves that we don't share with other people and while Newton didn't share necessarily the facts of his life with me, He did share the qualities of himself with me. And that was the best part. And that's what made our friendship true. And for a while, I really thought that like he might get in touch with me, that Newton might call me one day or meet me somewhere one day, and that he would divulge all of the details of his larceny to me so I could know how it really happened. And I was excited, but it didn't ever happen. Every now and then, I would like, look out on a crowd, and I would think, there he is, that's Newton. And I would run over, and I would look at their arm, and there wouldn't be a tattoo there. Sort of disappointing. But later on, a couple of years later, I read on the internet that he had actually been apprehended, and he was in prison. Um, he did go for one of the robberies that he had committed. And I really thought about writing him. I thought, I'll just send him a letter, and I'll be like, hey, how's it going? How's prison treating you? <laughs> make any new friends (laughs) but i didn't something stopped me and i think what stopped me was that there didn't seem to be this need to reconnect our friendship seemed like it was full and it was finished and i figured not all friendships need to last a lifetime what we had was perfect newton and mines our friendship was absolutely perfect
0: is risk this is the dandy warhols behind me now and we just heard from brooke lancaster before that a little interstitial that our dear friend amy salloway helped us out with she did the voice there of the non-existent girl that fucked Aaron brooke's dad now folks there are so many ways that you can become a part of this thing we call risk first you can pitch us your stories You can go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. There's a video there that gives kind of a tutorial on the best way to pitch us. You can also get a tutorial on putting a story together. If you go to our site, thestorystudio.org, and get our online course, Intro to Storytelling, it will lead you step-by-step through the workshopping of a story that you could prepare for us. But there's also sharing risk with your friends and family. Like, play some of your favorite stories for them and and teach them how to download the show. Talk about it on Facebook and Twitter. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter. Go to our site, risk-show.com, the listen pages. You can comment on the stories on, you know, the listen pages are the tables of contents of each episode. On top of introducing friends and family to the show, encourage friends and family to pitch us their stories. You know, we're especially always looking for stories from people of color or people from any groups that we might not hear from so often in the mass media. Finally, if you want to support us, there's a support us page at risk-show.com and you can purchase old episodes from the first couple of seasons of the show at our shop on our site as well. Oh, one more Just one more way you can support us is by going to podsurvey.com slash risk and filling out a very quick survey, totally anonymous. You'll also be eligible to get a $100 Amazon gift card. Go to podsurvey.com slash risk. Fill out the little survey there for our potential future advertisers. Our final story today comes from one of our very favorite storytellers. He is the school director at one of our very favorite comedy theaters, DSI Comedy Theater in Chapel Hill. And this story comes from our last show there in the Chapel Hill-Carborough area. This is Andrew Agapur with a story we call My First First Memory.
1: My first memory, the very earliest thing that I can remember, took place at a zoo. I was about three years old, and as a city kid, this was my big chance to see some animals in real life. Up until that point, my life had been limited to a small apartment above my parents' restaurant, so I was so excited to see nature. I can remember running ahead of my parents down a hallway towards a bright room, And I got in there and saw a giant wall that was made out of thick glass. And on the other side of it was a beautiful landscape of trees and grass and rocks and flowers. And on the far end, a gorilla. (laughs) I was amazed at what I saw. I started walking towards it slowly timidly you have to remember that to a three-year-old a gorilla is the tallest strongest hairiest thing you've ever seen it's like your dad squared (laughs) the essence of masculinity multiplied by itself so I'm just amazed and like Freudian overload and this gorilla doesn't see me yet he's sitting leaning with his back up against this clear wall pulling grass out of the ground and eating it. So I walk up slowly uh, with each step more and more afraid. And this gorilla is getting bigger and bigger as I get closer. Compared to me, he may as well have been the size of a house. And I get real close and the gorilla notices my presence. He turns and sees me and I'll never forget what he did next. He lifted up his hand and extended it towards me, his palm upturned he looked me right in the eyes and then he vomited into his hand. And it was like this thick grassy paste like what comes out of a lawnmower. Uh, And then he looked at it and then he looked back at me and then without breaking eye contact he ate that vomit. This shook me to my core. I was horrified. And what scared me wasn't the vomit. It was the indifference. This gorilla did not care that I was there at all. I was three. Up until that point, every adult I'd ever met had fawned over me. And here I go and see a gorilla, and it didn't give a shit. It didn't care at all. It just looked at me with these cold, apathetic eyes. Like, it didn't matter at all that I was there. And I think that that struck me, that seared itself into my brain, because it gave me this new sense of the universe. This gorilla represented nature, or God, and all of a sudden this was a God in whose eyes I was just boring. I just didn't care. So my next big memory, the next memory of a full day that I can really remember in rich detail, came in the sixth grade in a middle school uh, gym class. And the, word that's, the two words that start that memory out are junkyard baseball. <laughs> junkyard baseball was the name that my middle school gym coach, Mr. Jake, gave to what we played. Uh, and junkyard baseball was just like regular baseball, except you played it on a disused basketball court, uh, and instead of bases, we used trash. I went to a public school. <laughs> I want to tell you about Mr. Jake. I didn't like Mr. Jake, and Mr. Jake didn't like me. I think it was because we were such opposites. You see, Mr. Jake was the archetypal South Carolina gym teacher. Uh, He was this big, hulking, good old boy. Uh, He had a big, athletic frame. He always wore the same uniform, which is a white polo shirt tucked into khaki shorts, and he always carried a whistle, a bright, shiny whistle that would rest on his big gut. Uh, Mr. Jake was one to pick favorites. He made a lot of snide remarks, and when he got angry, his face would turn beet red. Mr. Jake was, for many of us, from the perspective of a sixth grader, the scariest, most weird adult figure that we'd ever seen—a stepdad squared, if you will. <laughs> it's scary. And Mr. Jake did not like me. I was his opposite. I was this little brown Muslim kid who had to step out of gym class every day to do one of my five daily prayers. I was also tiny and scrawny. I had chronic asthma, which meant that if I exercised too much, my lungs would seize up and I would stop being able to breathe. I was the opposite of athletic. And thinking back on it, there was another reason that I was so unathletic. And I think it had to do with hand-eye coordination. You know, sports requires hand-eye coordination. But between my hand and my eye, there's this third thing that would always clog up the works, which was an overwhelming fear of failure. <laughs> Just total fear of looking like an idiot. I don't know where this fear of failure came from. Maybe it was having immigrant parents who are always pushing me to be successful at school. Maybe it was Islam which had instilled in me a sense that my actions were being recorded for future evaluation. (laughs) Maybe it was being an asthmatic kid who was always having these spectacular health problems that were such a big public display. But I was so afraid of failure and so obsessed with how to make up for it, how to mitigate it, how to deal with failure when it came my way. And that would make me a worse athlete. I'll give you an example. Like, uh, imagine we're shooting hoops. I'm really busy focusing on how how the athletic guys would like shrug off a bad throw so that I could emulate that later. And then meanwhile, the basketball is hitting me in the face. (laughs) So when Mr. Jake announced that we were gonna play junkyard baseball, I went straight to him and I said, Mr. Jake, you know that I've got asthma, I can't run, I think this is a bad idea, I shouldn't play, I should just sit this one out. And Mr. Jake replied, well Andrew, you only have to run if you actually hit the ball. (laughs) Which if you don't know him, classic Mr. Jake. I was so afraid and there was no one else I could appeal to it was and when it came to that junkyard baseball field Mr. Jake was king there was no other adult it was just him and half of the 6th grade class there was no higher authority than Mr. Jake so I came up with a plan my plan was when it was my turn to go up at bat I would just strike out display the appropriate amount of masculine regret and then go to the back of the line easy easy so it's my turn up at bat. Instantly, everyone knew what was going to happen. The outfielders started walking in. People started chatting with each other. Uh, so I close my eyes. The first pitch comes. I swing and line drive right out to left field. When I heard the crack of the bat, I did what I always do when I hear a loud noise, which is duck. And, but then I heard Mr. Jake screaming, ''Run, Andrew, run, run to first base!'' So I start to run to first base and I'm running and my teammates are all cheering for me. So I'm feeling good and I've got pride and I'm running and I'm pumping my arms and my SAS brand orthopedic shoes are like running (laughs) hot. And as I'm getting towards first base, I can see that the outfielders are still running towards the ball. I decide to slow down and stop at first to play it safe, but then I hear a whistle. I hear Mr. Jake yelling. Keep running, second base, Andrew, second base. So I kept running towards second. On my way to second base, I could see that the outfielders were shaking a bush that the ball must have rolled into. And I'm trying to gulp in air, running as fast as I can. And as I get near second, I hear that whistle again. Mr. Jake, third base, third base, third base. So I round second and start moving towards third. It's at this point that it's becoming really difficult to breathe. I'm just struggling to get air into my body. My feet are flailing under me, and I just know that if I can make it to third base, that will be the greatest physical accomplishment of my entire life. <laughs> I could get there. It would be amazing. And I could rest for a little bit and catch my breath, and then maybe wait and go to the nurse's office after the innings. Of but that didn't happen because the outfeeders got to the ball. And on my way to third, I saw that ball arc over me, right towards the third baseman's mitt, right over it. And then it hit the ground and kept rolling away. (laughs) My teammates are cheering, home, home, Andrew, home base. And I just start running as fast as I can, eyes closed. At a certain point, my lungs are no longer letting in oxygen. I can't breathe. My lungs feel like a clenched fist, but I just want to make it home. And I can remember getting to that plate. I don't remember much else after that. I can remember (laughs) being at the nurse's office for a little bit. I can remember being at the hospital, being hooked up to a machine called a nebulizer. Then my next memory that day is waking up in my parents' room from a nap. That night, I was so proud of myself. I'd had a lot of asthma attacks that made me go to the hospital before, uh, but this is the first one that I was proud of. (laughs) I was just imagining the the hero's welcome that I would get the next day. Andrew Agapur, sports phenom, (laughs) prince of the junkyard. (laughs) The next morning, my mom dropped me off as usual at the front gate, and waiting for me there was one of my friends, Jenna, who was in my gym section. And she had this huge smile on her face. She couldn't contain herself. So I walked up to her and she said, you won't believe it. I went around and I told everybody at lunch yesterday that Andrew Agapur hit a home run and nobody believed me. And she had this big smile on her face. I don't think she'd be mean. I think she was just like, this is ironic. This is amazing. I was horrified how terrible I felt that my one physical accomplishment had meant nothing I had finally not failed at sports and it was meaningless to me I was sulking my legs were trembling and then I remembered the gorilla (laughs) when I said earlier that that gorilla was my first memory actually I could have been more accurate it was my first first memory the first time that I ever had a flashback to something that felt like the earliest thing. That's what happened to me at that front gate at middle school. All of a sudden, that moment flashed into my brain. We know now that memory is a contextual, active process, that remembering something is less like replaying a tape and more like telling yourself an old story. And that moment, I think, was really formative for me. Almost everything that you could know about my personality can go back to me remembering that a gorilla once threw up while looking at me with total indifference. (laughs) Because, personally, that's how I really do see the universe. I don't think the universe cares about me at all. And I think that's a good thing. Like, if I get rear-ended or if my flight gets cancelled, I don't sweat it. I don't care because it is not personal. If my penis falls off tomorrow, and the doctors are like, we have no idea, we're going to name this disease after you. I'm going to be super chill about it. Because I know uh, that, you know, shit happens. More specifically, vomit happens. And sometimes you're the one standing in that spot at the zoo. I think more people should have this brand of nihilism. It makes you check yourself and... Realize that not every great thing that's happened to you is something that you actually deserve. Like right now, standing in front of you, this is an honor, and I can appreciate that it's an honor because I don't deserve this. I don't. Right now, the gorilla vomit is coming up, Andrew. You know? Really. And, and, you know, tomorrow, my penis might fall off. What I'm trying to say is you've got to live in the moment, I guess.
2: <laughs>
1: that spark of what would later be my worldview, this realization uh, that I had on that middle school playground, uh, hit me like a ton of bricks. I remember realizing that I spent so much of my time being anxious about what other kids thought about me, worried about looking like a loser, afraid of being caught just being myself and then i did something heroic and the world didn't seem to care no one was scrutinizing me that closely in the first place the morning bell rang uh, and i lined up as we always did to go into class walking into school that day i remember shivering with the sense that no one was watching thank you you've
2: been packing your body test time you've been up on the roof again say so goodbye. Time of sorrow.
0: That's all for this week's episode, folks. This is Fan Farlow behind me now, and now I'm going to read this gigantic list of where Risk is appearing next. On April 16th, we are in Los Angeles at the Nerdist Showroom, and on the 24th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn on April 27th. We're in Vancouver, Canada. Come on out, Vancouver. It'll be... Oh, wait a minute. It's already sold out. Well, if a wrist show is ever sold out, come anyway, because there's always extra tickets. That's a thing. Show up at the doors, folks, when you hear that something's sold out like that. On April 28th, we're in Seattle, Washington at the Vera Project again. On April 30th. We're in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. On May 15th, we are in Boston, and we're still taking pitches for that show. So, Boston folks, pitch us. The theme is respect. You can go to the submissions page at risk and find out how to pitch. Now, on the 20th of May is our very special show at the Bell House, which is all about the state Janine Garofalo will be there. Carrie Kenny Silver. Michael Ian Black and Michael Showalter might be there. Various special guests and people coming in by video. So that's the 20th of May at the Bell House. Go get those tickets now. May 21st, we're in Minneapolis, Minnesota. April 23rd is the pitch deadline. The theme is repugnant. June, we're probably going to have a Pittsburgh date in there. But June 17th, we're definitely in Philadelphia, PA. The theme is Disgusted. The pitch deadline is May 20th. June 25th, we're in St. Louis, Missouri. The theme is Worried. The pitch deadline is May 28th. July 8th, we're in San Francisco again. The theme is Resonant. The pitch deadline for San Francisco is June 10th. You can always pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. (laughs) Take a risk. that's a walrus sound. there's
2: a walrus sound. there's a walrus hand. a walrus sound. That's a walrus sound. a walrus a walrus the War of Thale.